They promised, we waited, and now it's here. The GOP tax plan. It's still a work in progress, but we're going to start breaking it down by the numbers. So the House Republican plan would increase the child tax credit from up to $1,000 per kid to up to $1,600 per kid. And that uh, phases out gradually the more a family earns. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. We are going to get to the tax plan. And yes, someone new will likely head the Federal Reserve. We'll explain why that matters. But we're going to start with the issue of sexual harassment. Since the revelations broke about Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein, more and more sexual harassment allegations have come to light against actor Kevin Spacey, journalist Mark Halperin, NPR editor Michael Oreskes, and more. And in the name of disclosure, I myself have experienced harassment in my career. And people have looked at the cost of sexual harassment to businesses, settlements, lost work time, loss of business. But for the people who experience sexual harassment, well, there's not as much economic research. Heather McLaughlin is one of the few people who has done this work. She's an assistant professor of sociology at Oklahoma State University, and she studied the economic and career effects of sexual harassment on working women and interviewed them. Welcome. Thank you. Yours is one of the few studies that attempts to measure the cost of sexual harassment. Why did you decide to do this? Yeah, well, we're really interested in trying to look at some of the more tangible effects of sexual harassment. Um, There's a lot of research that shows that sexual harassment can have long-term mental health effects for working women and and men who experience sexual harassment, but it was more difficult to really look at those tangible economic career effects. And so that's a, a question that we really, really wanted to tackle. Well, what did you find was sort of the most immediate cost for women who had been harassed? Yeah, so most immediately, um, we found that a really large percentage of women quit their jobs. Um, And so that's not all that surprising, unfortunately. Um, At the time of our research, we were looking at women who were in their late 20s. Um, A little over half of women started a new job in this two-year window that we were looking at. Um, But for those who experienced more severe sexual harassment, it was 80%. Wow. And so women were quitting their jobs either because of the sexual harassment itself or also because of the way that, you know, the sexual harassment was handled. Um, But they were quitting their jobs and they were also reporting more immediate financial stress. You also looked long-term and you you found that women who experienced harassment actually saw their, their wages stagnate. What was going on there? Yeah, we found that a lot of women who quit their jobs were starting over in new careers entirely. So some of them were able to find comparable jobs in the same field. um, But many of them, this really affected the types of jobs that they were looking for. And so they wanted to work in a field where, you know, for example, they thought that sexual harassment was less likely to occur. Mm. Um, So Pam is a really great example of this. Um, Pam was working as an accountant for a bank, and she had been there for about four years. And one day, one of her coworkers came up to her and said, you know, hey, Pam, did you ever wonder why Billy uses this photocopier over here instead of the one that's closest to his desk? And um, Pam said, no, you know, why? What's that? And her coworker said, you know, oh, you're kidding me, right? And so he went on to name all of these things that had been happening that Pam had no idea, right? So Bill um, would stare and leer at her. He would engage in lewd gestures. He drew pictures of Pam on his computer and showed people. 
Um, so Pam was outraged, right? She was understandably really upset that this happened, and she talked to her employer. So the employer reprimanded Bill, right, and said, hey, you can't do this stuff. Um, but she was really upset that more wasn't done here. And she also felt really betrayed by her coworkers, because when this was investigated, they all kind of corroborated the story and said, yeah, this has been happening. But no one ever told her, you know, before this. Um, no one ever confronted Bill directly, and, and these are all pseudonyms. Um, but so she just said that she just really had a hard time trusting people after that. And so she ended up cutting her hours back at the bank. Um, and eventually she started working with a computer hardware company. Um, and she told us, you know, this isn't something that I'm interested in. You know, I don't care about computer hardware. I took this job because I feel like I had to. You know, she said, I went to a position where I'm pretty much solitary. I work by myself, which is the way that I want it, right? So you can really see how that can affect some women's career trajectories and the types of jobs that they're interested in after something like this happens. Well, a lot of what you're talking about here is work environment, you know, hostile work environment, but then also how a supervisor or colleagues respond. And I guess I'm curious, when you spoke with women who had experienced harassment, what did they say about whether they had sort of supportive responses from the people around them or not? Yeah, so, you know, that's a really great question, because in Pam's case, she said her coworkers did support her, right? They seemed just as outraged, too, and they really, um, you know, turned their backs on this person. But no one did that until she's the one that started this complaint, hmm. right? And so I think that that workplace culture is in a really important part of this story with sexual harassment. Um, you know, Lisa, for example, she worked at an ad agency, and she described this environment as really misogynistic. Men would often drink and go to strip clubs. Um, and so when she exposed this hostile work environment, she said that after that, she was watched really closely by people. She saw her responsibilities slowly being taken away. Her relationships deteriorated. And she said, you know, this is a quote from her interview. She says, I would never become friends with these people. My boss would never be a mentor. I would never have any relationships with these people. So that was rough. And finally, I just quit. That's it. I'm out of here. I'll eat rice and live in the dark if I have to. Right. And so I think that this really reveals that a lot of working women are saying, you know, I'd, I'd much rather just quit and escape this environment than stick around and try to change it. And many times they didn't feel like they had the power to really do that, um, you know, especially in cases like this, where even when they tried, um, you know, people turn their backs on them. I have to ask, someone could listen to this interview and say, well, yeah, but quitting is voluntary. What would you say to that? Yeah, I think that um, this is a less than voluntary decision. Hmm. People are forced out of these jobs. When you have the decision of whether or not, you know, to go into work today and experience these types of behaviors again, right? So do I really want to get up again this morning and go in and experience unwanted touching or staring or leering? Or again, comments about my body and what I'm wearing and how that can you know, affect the decisions you're making in the morning. And um, so, yes, it's voluntary in the sense that they make that decision not to show up. Um, but the long-term consequences consequences this has. Like, it's not easy. It's not easy for people to make those decisions to put your own economic standing at risk in order to get out of these types of harassing scenarios. You really zeroed in on these sort of early career or early mid-career women. And what seems to me is at play there is this question of power dynamic, right? It's hard to know at 26 that you're ever going to be 42 and the boss. Uh, do you have a sense of whether the harassment these women reported inhibited their ability to, to get to more senior positions? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, 
a lot of these women who were working in you know high paying jobs um, did leave those and pursue work in fields that they expected sexual harassment to be less likely to occur. And for some of them, that meant jobs that were more dominated by women. So there were fewer men there. And so they thought that they would be less at risk. Um, but we also know that a lot of those types of jobs also come with less pay. Right. Um, so they might be able to, I'm not sure if they would be able to move up as quickly or not in those fields. Um, there's also research suggesting that um, men experience a glass escalator, right, where they move up more quickly to positions of authority, um, even in women-dominated fields. Um, so I don't know about management authority, but certainly they're being um, shuffled into fields that are associated with lower pay because of the harassment. Can you put a dollar figure on what these women lost by being harassed? Um you know, I can't. <laughs> um, I think it, it depends on these different cases. And I think the reality is that a lot of women are experiencing sexual harassment that isn't being captured in our research, right? So we certainly found this relationship where for those that we know experienced harassments, their earnings stagnated. But that might even be underestimating the extent to which sexual harassment impacts women's careers. Um, because I imagine that some of the women in that other group also experienced it as well. And before I let you go, why do you think there is so little research on this? I mean, I, I raise a skeptical eyebrow and I guess I say, gee, 85% of economists are male. Uh, why isn't anyone studying this more? Yeah, um, I think that sexual harassment is difficult to study. Um, we can ask people if they've experienced any of these behaviors, but we can also ask people whether they would apply the term sexual harassment to what they're going through. And we see pretty big discrepancies there. But also, I think we especially need research from the perspective of harassers, which is even more difficult, right? Why do individuals in these positions of power abuse that using um, this particular mechanism of sexual harassment? I think that needs to be further explored and analyzed. Heather McLaughlin from Oklahoma State, thank you so much. Thank you. Last week on the show, we talked about the body trade industry, open healthcare enrollment, and YouTube beauty videos for the over 50s. I started getting feedback from people that they were using my skincare routine, all the same stuff, would buy the exact same thing, and they were sending me these comments and private emails and everything. Oh my gosh, you've, you've changed my skin. My skin is the best it's been in years. That's Angie Schmidt. She runs the beauty site Hot and Flashy. Nina Kay left a comment at Marketplace.org saying, I somehow stumbled upon Angie Hot and Flashy about a year ago. I adore her and depend on her advice. I'm 57, worn makeup all my life, but the industry has exploded. She's a charming woman, and I love her vlog. Michael Betts also listened to the segment, and he had this to say. As a 35-year-old and definitely not mature male, I found myself awake and engrossed in a story about makeup at 6 in the morning. That's strong work. Thanks to everybody for putting together a program that is both entertaining and educational. Hey, Michael, thank you for writing. And we also talked about subscription boxes. I love the convenience. I like having someone else help me pick out clothing, give me ideas about how to wear the clothes, and it saves me time not having to go shopping at the mall. Convenience is a big draw for subscription box fans, but Sarah Williams Major wrote on Facebook that when it comes to clothes, quote, 
I prefer the fun and surprise of consignment stores. Katie Shepard wrote us about food subscription boxes, saying, I canceled the food service plated this week because $54 every few weeks weighs on our newlywed budget. I think the box model will survive but needs to react to market conditions. Share your thoughts about anything you hear on the show. You can email us. We're weekend at marketplace.org. Leave us a voicemail. Call 1-800-648-5114. And if you listen to the show via podcast, leave us a review. It helps other people find us. And now, taxes. More specifically, the potential rewrite of the American tax code unveiled by Republicans in the U.S. House. We've been waiting on this thing for a while, and there is a lot in their 429-page plan. Tax cuts for corporations, fewer tax brackets, changes to tax deductions and credits. And we're going to focus on that part and dig into some of what affects a typical middle-class family. With Marketplace senior correspondent Amy Scott. Hi, Amy. Hi. So we're going to talk through some of the potential credits and deductions in this plan, but let's sort of back up. Why don't we lay out what credits do? So a tax credit reduces the amount of tax you owe. So for example, if you qualify for a $100 tax credit, that means you pay $100 less in taxes. And some credits are called refundable, which means that you get that money even if you didn't earn enough to pay that much in taxes. You would actually get a check from the government. And deductions, though people often think of them as similar, are a little different. A deduction reduces the amount of your income that can be taxed. So, for example, right now, many middle-class families get a deduction on the interest they pay on their mortgage. That reduces their total tax bill by a percentage depending on their income. All right. So we've got the basics out of the way. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the family credit and then this expansion of the child tax credit. Both are in this uh, House GOP proposal. What, What would people get as part of this? So the House Republican plan would increase the child tax credit from up to $1,000 per kid to up to $1,600 per kid. And that uh, phases out gradually the more a family earns. Um, This family credit is a new credit that would let people who don't have kids take $300 off their tax bill per dependent in the family that's not a child. That uh, is meant to offset some some reductions uh, in some of the deductions that families can take. When you've been talking to analysts, who do they say are the winners and losers in this part of the plan, as far as we can tell? Well, this part of the plan is really designed to benefit middle-class families. As I said, it phases out, the child tax credit phases out gradually the more money you make. And it's partially refundable, so lower-income families uh, can get a portion of that child credit. But the plan would not increase the portion that's refundable. So one critic I talked to said that there are some 16 million low-wage working parents who won't see any benefit from the increase. So, you know, you outlined this before. Deductions are sort of the flip side of credits. Um, What happens to deductions under this proposal? What stays, what goes when, you know, we're thinking about a middle-class family here? 
So several deductions are going away or shrinking. Uh, taxpayers will no longer be able to, to deduct the amount they pay in state and local taxes from their federal taxable income. Uh, the mortgage deduction that I mentioned would be cut in half for new homes purchased. Uh, but another popular deduction on retirement savings would stay. Um, also, there is a personal exemption. Right now, taxpayers can take an exemption of up to $4,050 for themselves and each family member in the household, which is basically treated like a deduction. It reduces your taxable income. That goes away under this plan. So that family credit I mentioned was uh, part of a way to make up for, for the loss of that exemption. All of this stuff can be really complicated when we're throwing around numbers and ideas, but can you give us an example of sort of walk through some potential scenarios here? Well, I have uh, an example of a working mom who's a single mom who has two kids. Um, she is not going to see if she's a low-wage worker like a, a home health aide. Um, she's not going to see an increase from the, the expanded child tax credit. A family making $200,000 a year that have two kids will see $3,200 um, in a tax credit. And that's just money in their pockets. Um, on the other hand, because the deductions are uh, many of them are being reduced. It's not clear whether that family would actually come out ahead. It's going to depend a lot on their individual circumstances, you know, uh, where they live, how much they make, and what other deductions they can claim. When we talk about credits and deductions making up sort of the, the basis of a plan, um, is there a sense of whether one is a better benefit than the other? Yeah, tax credits are considered much better for middle and working class folks because they put more money uh, in the bank. It's a dollar for dollar reduction of what you owe. And, and if you don't owe that much, you in some cases get a check from the government. Um, deductions tend to benefit wealthier people because, you know, they're the ones who have the mortgage and the retirement account and the investment income to take those deductions. We talked to Lewis Brown Jr., who's a senior associate at PolicyLink, uh, which is a group that advocates for social and economic equality. And here's what he told Marketplace. If we really want to make the tax code more fair, we need to move from focusing so much on itemized deductions or you know, eliminating one deduction and replacing it with another and provide more credits to the individuals that need help the most. So this House plan does reduce some of that unfair unfairness by getting rid of some deductions that really benefited higher income people. Uh, but critics say it wouldn't do enough at the other end of the scale. This is no doubt going to be a sort of twisty, turny, evolving process as we move toward whatever the finished product will be. Uh, Marketplace's senior correspondent, Amy Scott, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. The other big economic news this week has to do with these names. See if you know who they are. Charles Hamlin, Mariner Eccles, Arthur Burns. Know who they are? What do they have in common? 
they're all former chairs of the Federal Reserve. And as it turns out, the current chair, Janet Yellen, will soon be a former as well. On Thursday, President Trump nominated current Fed Governor Jerome Powell as her successor. The Fed affects all of our lives, but, you know, it can be a little confusing to understand. So for this week's five things, what you need to know about the Fed. We've got Roger Lowenstein, author of America's Bank, the epic struggle to create the Federal Reserve. We start with point one. What's the Fed's job? So the Fed's first job, the one that I think Americans are most familiar with, is raising and lowering interest rates. Um, These are the rates that determine uh, how much it costs to borrow money, to uh, buy a car or a home mortgage or almost anything else you might want to borrow money for. The Federal Reserve Board, uh, which has seven members, makes this decision uh, with the help of various Fed Reserve Bank presidents. But the leader of this board is the Federal Reserve Chairman. And generally, uh, the board follows uh, the Fed Chairman. All right, point two. What's the Fed's deal with inflation? Well, we just learned that the Fed has the job of raising or lowering interest rates. Uh, Sometimes, if the Fed lowers interest rates uh, too much, uh, obviously more people are going to borrow. Those people who borrow are going to spend. The things that they buy, there's going to be more demand from them. Prices are going to go up. And what do you know? There's inflation. So uh, the Fed doesn't want that. Uh, Part of its official job is to prevent inflation, so it monitors inflation very closely. Point three, what can the Federal Reserve tell us about the economy? Well, by uh, congressional statute, uh, the Fed not only has the job of making sure that the economy doesn't uh, grow too quickly, that is to say, generate inflation, but it has the job of making sure that the economy doesn't uh, grow too slowly and that uh, people lose jobs and so on. So it monitors growth very carefully in all regions of the country, uh, every industry. It is an enormous consumer of economic statistics, and it tries to put together a picture each month of just how and where the U.S. economy is growing. All right. What about the stock market? Well, officially, it's not the Fed's job to worry about, say, the stock market or uh, even real estate prices or the price of gold or the price of the yen and so on. But uh, as we know, the Fed pays very close attention to all of those things because, uh, as we've seen, when the prices of stocks or bonds or other financial assets get out of whack, it can have very real and sometimes very damaging effects on the underlying economy. That's to say on the creation of jobs and unemployment and so on. So the Fed pays very close attention to stock prices, other asset prices, and sometimes tries to talk them down or jawbone them down when it feels that there's a bubble developing. And the last point, number five, The Fed can step in when things go very wrong. The last responsibility of the Fed is the one that no one likes to think about, and that's its responsibility for playing fireman. That is to say, uh, providing rescues, or use a a word that people really don't like, uh, bailouts, uh, when the economy seems to really be going in the tank. And of course, we saw this in a big way in 2008 and 2009 uh, during the mortgage meltdown when the Fed together with the U.S. Treasury, bailed out a great number of uh, American financial institutions. And the Fed also uh, provided a continuing bailout by buying all sorts of securities that it normally wouldn't invest in to prop up the prices of those securities and provide uh, credit to the economy. And the Fed's done that for Mexico. It's done that for a hedge fund. Uh, At least it's encouraged and urged a private bailout in all sorts of ways. Uh, the Fed has played a fireman to rescue private institutions when it felt that the U.S. economy was at stake. 
Thanks to author Roger Lowenstein for his five things we need to know about the Federal Reserve. You can read more and check out five things on 401ks and earnings reports on our website, marketplace.org. And send us an economic or financial topic you'd like explained. Just email the show. We're weekend at marketplace.org. Recently, the NAACP warned African-American travelers about flying American Airlines, saying they'd seen racial bias by the company's employees. And Papa John's, Uber, United Airlines, Chick-fil-A have all been boycotted or criticized by consumers. Sometimes it's about company policy. Sometimes about something the boss or an employee did. And nowadays, a viral Twitter complaint or a hashtag campaign can spiral quickly, making a company scramble. That can mean a public apology, an attempt to ride out negative publicity, or something else entirely. But we wanted to look into this idea of kind of regulating corporate behavior by consumer attention. So we turned to Braden King. He is a professor at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern, and he studies boycotts. Welcome. Thanks. Glad to be here. How much consumer activism is enough to to move the needle when we're talking about organizing around a big company? Well, there needs to be enough activism that it gets the attention of the public. I mean, that's really the main mechanism that activists use to drive social organizational change is that they grab the public's attention and uh, put the company in a negative spotlight. And then that causes the company to be concerned about its reputation. What happens when they do this on a big scale? I mean, does it work? It can. They're sometimes very effective. So protests and boycotts in particular have been shown to be very effective. In a number of studies that we've done, we found that around 25% of boycotts lead to some sort of public concession when they get national media attention. So it's really key that the boycotts get that media attention. You did this research in 2011 that you just referenced. How has social media and the way we use it changed the way these things play out? Well, one thing I've noticed is that there just are a lot more boycotts than there have ever been in the past. So Twitter, Facebook, other kinds of social media have lowered the cost of activists who want to organize. So it used to be that you had to have a, a really well-functioning organization to get a boycott off the ground or at least have any chance of making a dent. But today, you know, all you need is to be able to organize with other people of a similar mind on Facebook. And you, you don't even have to have an organization behind you. So one thing that it's done is it's lowered the cost of organizing. And because of that, boycotts have proliferated. The other thing that it's done is that it has made it much easier for them to get the word out to the media and to other third parties who care about these things. So now the media is oftentimes, and I speak about you know newspapers, television, radio, they are really kind of forced to pay attention because it first, the boycotts first create a buzz on, on social media. You know, when we think about boycotts or protests as a form of regulation, really, Is that the right way to think about them, you know, sort of consumers regulating companies via what they buy and don't buy? Yeah, I mean, I would add an important caveat to that, and that is that the regulation really comes from the the pressure 
of just negative attention and the, the potential, potentially negative effects that that has on reputation. It's not clear that customers actually do anything at all mm. at, at, at the time of a boycott. So, you know, there's just not a lot of evidence that consumers actually follow through with, with their boycott. Consumers, um, if you want to say that the boycotters themselves are consumers, which they usually are, aren't oftentimes the people who buy the products of the companies that they're going after. Really what the company is most afraid of and what seems to be happening is that it creates this reputational threat that could affect their long-term brand management. And so they're concerned about consumers in the future and what they might think of the company if it becomes associated with a negative behavior. You know, There's no evidence, very little evidence, that consumers are actually changing their behavior in reaction to boycotts. So it's not something that is, you know, affecting a profit and loss statement. It's much more about just sort of the image of the company. Yeah, and long-term risk management. So when companies speak of this among themselves, they talk about, you know, our reputation is a key part of our long-term risk management. If we screw up our reputation because we don't handle this boycott or other kinds of public relations crises um, in a good way, then this could really come back to haunt us in the long term. You know, one question I have when we think about this as sort of almost regulating behavior. Um, should consumers be the ones to do this, or, or do we risk sort of moving into an area of vigilantism as, a, as opposed to sort of having the, the government be a regulatory body? It's a good question. And, you know, I, I guess we're, really what we're asking for is, you know, how much, how much do we care about what activists think? Um, do activists um, who are not the majority of consumers, who are not um, usually elected officials, do they have the right to sort of drive what what the market does? And you know, clearly they do. They're, they're not breaking any laws. And you know, we live in a society where we believe people have the right to free expression. I think also that what they've realized, what activists have realized over the years, is that their voice matters because they can do something that that can harm a company. But by doing that, what they're what they're really uh, the changes that they affect is to help align companies with the social values of different communities. If there are other values out there represented by different communities that run contrary to those, then those people are also able and free to express themselves in a similar way. So I don't see this as vigilanteism so much as I see it as you know the market operating in a society in which um, activists have the right of free expression. Braden King studies boycotts, and he's the Max McGraw Chair of Management at the Kellogg School at Northwestern. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. And for low-lying countries, a huge economic challenge is climate change. Next week, the latest UN climate summit will take place in Bonn, Germany. President Trump announced the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Agreement back in June. So what do these talks mean for the U.S.? For more, we have our sustainability reporter, Jed Kim. Hi, Jed. Hi, Lizzie. All right, so what is so significant about this conference? Well, it is and it isn't. Uh, it's not that significant when it comes to agenda. Uh, there's no Paris Agreement like there was two years ago. This one's more what they call a working conference to figure out how to carry out the specifics of that Paris deal. 
It is going to be more significant in tone because this is the first conference since President Trump announced plans to withdraw from the Paris Agreement. And we've also announced an end to the Clean Power Plan, which was important to keeping our emissions reductions targets. So I think we can expect to see some pointed language directed at Trump. Well, so what will the American presence be like then? I mean, after these policies have sort of been put into place. Yeah, well, we'll still have to send some officials to be part of negotiations. That's because we can't actually leave the agreement until 2020, and we'll still want to have U.S. interests represented at the talks. It does remain to be seen, though, whether there'll be any withering of American influence because of, you know, its decision. Um, Last year's presidential election happened right as the talks in Marrakesh were happening. That was a big surprise, and the countries there, they kind of galvanized to fight climate change despite whatever the U.S. does. Well, so the ongoing goal of all of this is to keep the planet's temperature increase below two degrees Celsius. You know, can can they do that in with this sort of funky American position? Right. You know, there are questions of whether the commitments that countries have agreed to are enough to even keep that from happening. Hmm. You know, for logistical reasons, this year's conference is in Germany, but is technically being hosted by Fiji. Fiji is an island nation in the Pacific, and this is the first time one of those nations is hosting. So one thing we can expect to see a lot of at the talks are um, a lot about the plight of small island nations in the face of climate change. We know the theme of our show is where the economy meets real life. And for people in these small island nations, this is real life. This is an existential threat. Right, yeah. Places like Fiji... Increasing typhoon risk, more disease outbreaks, salt water intruding, eating away at their farmland. But even Fiji isn't as bad off as some other nations. Now, I spoke with Gregory Stone. He's an oceanographer and also a science advisor to Kiribati, or as people there call it, Kiribati. That's been identified as the first nation that will disappear as a result of climate change. And notice I said will disappear That's because Hmm. all this effort to limit warming, Stone says it's too late for them. That is their destiny, and there's no way to stop it. uh, There's so much momentum in the climate system today that if we stopped burning all fossil fuels tomorrow and stopped adding to to the load, these islands, these nations will still go underwater. He says in 100 years, it'll be mostly submerged reefs, but even well before then, it'll be unlivable because water's just going to keep washing over the islands. Well, so what does that mean for the people who live there now? It's sad. It essentially means they're going to have to find a new place to live. There are about 100,000 residents, and they're going to become an entirely diasporic people. I spoke with Christine Zerman. She's honorary consul to Kiribati here in Los Angeles. And she says you know, they're not a wealthy nation and they have so much they have to get done in the limited time they have left. We must get on with business. And right now the aim is to prepare our country for a migration with dignity so that when they are received by a hosting nation, they're prepared to work and become part of that community and even become beneficial to that community. That means, in large part, education, which has been a big problem for Kiribati. She's also hoping that they can figure out a way to hold on to their resources as their islands submerge. Kiribati has valuable minerals and also a major share of the global tuna supply in their waters. She thinks there could be a way to share revenue so that their people can have an easier transition. 
Marketplace's Jed Kim from our sustainability desk. Thank you very much. Thank you. We've all got a financial life, but what does that look like when you're in the public eye? That's where the Marketplace Quiz comes in, when authors, musicians, and other creative people share their thoughts on money and work. Hey, I'm Ben McKee, and I play bass for Imagine Dragons. And I am Dan Reynolds, and I sing for Imagine Dragons. And we're going to take a little quiz. So, Ben, fill in the blank. Money can't buy you happiness. But it can buy you. I'm going to go with it can buy you a moment's respite from everything when it gets all crazy. You can find a way to, you know, send your dog off to the kennel and go get a massage for a moment when uh, when everything gets a little too loud and crazy. Well, Dan, in a future life, if you could do it all over again, what would your career be? I've thought quite a bit about this, actually. This is going to sound really dark, and and so I'm sorry, but I'm trying to be very honest. I've always been really fascinated with murder cases. Yeah, so I so thought, serial killer. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, exactly. No, I, I would like to. I'd like to get involved in some sort of homicide detective role to some degree. I don't. I'm. I'm not looking to to use a gun. I don't think I could ever fire a gun at someone uh, or take someone's life. I think that sounds too overwhelming for me but the thought of helping a family or helping someone you know who has a loved one that is has uh, lost their life to kind of figure out what happened there i know it sounds like a 14 year old boy you know but i'm kind of a 14 year old boy in a 30 year old's body so i think that'd be fascinating yeah i think that uh i could be happy with a career as a park ranger something like that you know being very isolated and being in touch with nature that's i think where i feel most centered when i'm not on the road is when i'm by myself like in a grove of redwoods and uh spending some more time with that would be a welcome a welcome thing in my life i could see you being a really great park ranger yeah gotta protect the squirrels (laughs) um okay ben what is the hardest part about your job that no one knows i think probably one of the hardest parts is um just not having that idea of stability in your life you sort of have to expect the unexpected and accept huge lifestyle changes on a moment's notice and just move beyond that and uh, roll with the punches what about you dan maintaining the ability to sing that much especially with imagine dragons it's just a lot of dynamic singing it, it, it's really difficult and i also have two autoimmune diseases i have uh, ankylosing spondylitis and ulcerative colitis I have to go on a super strict diet on the road. Um, Basically, I eat vegetables and fish and chicken. For some people, I know that they already choose that diet on their own. But for me, I I, I have a hard time. Uh, So, Ben, what is something you bought that you now completely regret buying? Well, not being on an anti-inflammatory diet like Dan, as soon as we got done with our 15-hour bus ride yesterday, I ran into the nearest diner and got a Juicy Lucy, the famous... Uh, Minneapolis hamburger with the cheese on the inside. Also, some Parmesan cheese tater tots and some barbecue chicken nachos. 
and I haven't decided which one of those I regret, but certainly all three was was too much. <laughs> that sounds so good to me right now. Dan, yeah. when did you first realize that music could be an actual career for you? I don't know if I've ever had a full realization of that. I feel like as a musician, you're always thinking tomorrow everything is going to just collapse. And that's kind of the drive that keeps you going. Yeah, it's never seemed like a good decision professionally. Ben, what is your most prized possession? My most prized possession is my 1926 Martin Triple O 45 acoustic guitar that is gorgeous and I just pick it up and strum an open G chord and the sound makes everything all right. How about you, Dan? What's your uh, most prized possession? Well, I think the obvious answer would be say my children, but I think you, I don't oh, know if I your call children them a possession. Are not a possession. I know I was just, well, I was getting to that. I was going to say they're probably not a possession. That being said, probably my 67 Mustang. Ben, what was your very first job? My very first job was helping my dad haul concrete hoses out in uh, the muddy hills of Northern California. That sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah, and we'd have to, it'd always be like you start at 5.30 in the morning. Right, that's what I was going to say. But, you know, you'd be done before your friends were uh, waking up and have a little money in my pocket. Mm-hmm. Okay, How about point. you, Dan? What was your very first job? Well, it was much better than that. I was a janitor. Ooh. <laughs> I was a janitor at a law firm. Okay, um, Ben, what is something everyone should own, no matter the cost? I think that everybody should own a comfortable pair of shoes. I think that uh, going through life every day, you're a little bit happier if your feet are well taken care of. Dan, what do you think is something that everybody should own, no matter the cost? This is such a cliche answer, but it's the honest answer. Ah, A home, right? A place of refuge to get away from everything in the world and to actually have solace and peace so i'd say everybody deserves to have a roof over their head a house okay ben this is the final question Ooh, red alert red alert final question uh what advice do you wish someone had given you before you started your career i kind of wish somebody had told me to not be afraid to make choices that will lead to your own happiness i think that you know if you're living your life for other people trying to live up to their expectations and their idea of what you should be you're never really going to be happy and those people that really love you they'll be there to support you when you are on the other side of these difficult choices i feel like i'm living in the twilight zone right now because you almost word for word said what i was thinking boom that was ben mckee and dan reynolds from imagine dragons That quiz was produced by Eliza Mills. And you can listen to past quiz takers on our website, marketplace.org. Just go there and search for the Marketplace Quiz. The hottest ticket in New York is now the hottest ticket everywhere. I'm talking about Hamilton, of course. The hip-hop musical is spreading to London, L.A., dozens more cities on tour next year. 
And that's great for the theater industry, which has been trying to attract younger, more diverse crowds. But those crowds don't always have a few hundred bucks to spend on tickets. One ticket company aimed at millennials is taking the show's lottery system, where you can win a cheap ticket, and turning it into a scavenger hunt. We sent Marketplace digital producer Tony Wagner to check it out. I'm at Grand Central Market, a food hall in downtown Los Angeles. I heard there are Hamilton tickets for the taking here, and I'm on the hunt for fellow hunters. Luckily, I have a little help. I'm Ann Berkowitz. And I'm Taylor Myers. Taylor and Ann aren't with the Hamilton production, but a ticketing company, Today Ticks. Each week, they organize the scavenger hunt at different locations across the city. They send clues and a secret code through emails, social media, and their app. Hey, so we actually have, we're, we're trying to shake a regular. The first person to find Myers and Berkowitz and say a secret code gets two free tickets for the show that night. This is the seventh week, and the regulars have already started to recognize them. If you want to talk to him, yeah. that would actually be really yeah, a where? good distraction. Overalls and a pink hat. just following us. Overalls and a pink hat. He's not hard to spot. Excuse me, are you here for the Hamilton tickets? Maybe. This is Colton Iverson. He's an actor and a server, and hunting for Hamilton tickets is how he spends his day off. This is my fourth time trying to get tickets. Really? Uh-huh. So... I'm familiar with the people, and I've been stalking them, but then you started interviewing me, and I lost them. But I'm pretty sure I know where they're going to end up. Iverson has a strategy. He's not counting on his phone. Instead, he's got his head on a swivel, looking for Berkowitz, Myers, or anyone who might have a clue of where the tickets are hiding. Colton knows him when he sees him. Oh, she knew. You could see it in her eyes. (laughs) Yeah, she was just looking at me, looking at everyone. That Hamilton blood runs deep. Today Ticks has been dropping clues on Instagram, and Iverson thinks he found a new one. It's a pastrami sandwich. Pardon me, don't mean to interrupt. Is this something you sell here? He starts asking around, trying to figure out who serves it. All right, so, ooh, looks like we're in the right place, but it's all about finding the right person. You're not helping me out, bro. My equipment and my questions are slowing Iverson down at the worst possible moment. The last clue comes out at noon, and we're getting close to that deadline. I told him it's no big deal if he needs to run off, but before I could even finish my sentence... He just ran away. I give chase, and when I finally manage to catch up with Iverson, he's not alone. More than a dozen Hamilton fans have mobbed Taylor Myers, and at noon, she surprises them with a second clue. So this time we're doing two parts, so I'm part one. So you come here, you say the code, and I give you the hint for the other location. Got it, okay. So it's within the vicinity of this area, like 10 minutes, so you want to go to the arcade where no one plays games. Everyone scatters. I follow a couple stragglers who are furiously Googling for arcades nearby. Oh, there's a downtown arcade repair shop. I don't know if that would be it. But I don't know where it is. This is great. Now I'm typing on my phone and walking and talking to you at the same time. That last guy is Alex Salem. He and a buddy have split up to try to figure out the second clue, and he lets me tag along. We break into a light jog. But just because we're, like, jogging ahead very, like, vehemently doesn't mean we have any idea where we're going. We're trying to find Spring Street Arcade, another food hall, but by the time we get there, it's too late. Congratulations. Don't mean to rub it in. Don't mean to rub it in. Yo, go get a consolation prize. It could have only ended one way. Iverson won. <laughs> He's out of breath and deliriously happy. I ask him how he figured it out. And I knew instantly the Spring Street Arcade building. It's not an arcade. Ar- arcade comes from a French term meaning opening at two sides, and I know that because I'm a history nerd. And I thought I knew right away, and luckily I did. And I got the freaking tickets. I'm so happy. Fourth time's a charm. So another young theater lover got into some really coveted theater seats. They just had to work for it. In Los Angeles, I'm Tony Wagner for Marketplace.
Oh, the things we do to get that Hamilton ticket. For more on this story, check out our website, marketplace.org. Next week on the show, Allison Green from Ask a Manager is back to answer your questions, this time on the perils of food at the office. What's the etiquette when it comes to treats? And come on, fish in the microwave? Seriously, dude. Anyway, send us your food at work questions and comments, and Allison will help you navigate those culinary challenges. Email us or record a voice memo and send that to We're Weekend at Marketplace.org or call the voicemail line 1-800-648-5114. And speaking of work, do you have a 401k kicking around that maybe you forgot about? The problem of abandoned retirement accounts. That's all coming up next week. And that is it for this Marketplace Weekend. This show is produced by Eliza Mills and Peter Balanon-Rosen. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer. Charlton Thorpe is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Naren Rao. Satara Nieves is Marketplace's executive producer. And Deborah Clark is our vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.